This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Christy is an advanced placement and international baccalaureate literature teacher. And Gary is an AP IV history and psychology teacher, but most importantly, he's my husband. Today, we're excited to talk about our second book of the podcast, Fahrenheit 451. If this is your first time to check in with us, Christy looks at these stories from the perspective of a literature teacher and lover of words. Gary looks at what they may mean historically, psychologically, or sometimes just randomly. Oh, and before we get too far in, as you can tell, we're clearly rookie podcasters, but hopefully we're pretty good teachers. So if you like our stuff, subscribe. And if you have a particular book you'd really like us to get into, if there's something we left out of this podcast that the world really should know about, please let us know on our Facebook or Instagram page, How to Love Lit. We'd love to hear from you. And before we get started today, I'm going to give you the Christy random fact of the day. You may not know this, but Christy is actually fluent in Portuguese, and she actually did know, know I was going to bring that up. <laughs> anyway, so coming to you from Memphis, Tennessee, let's move right into what's so great about Fahrenheit 451. The title of this episode is Bradbury the Prophet, an introduction. Christy, start off by telling us, uh, giving us a little bit of intro. Well... It's true that I'm, uh, I speak Portuguese, and I don't know what inspired you to throw that in, but if we have any brasileiros out there, vambora e vão estudar, porque aqui também se estuda português e inglês. For those of you who don't understand that, I was just inviting our Brazilian friends to come on in. So back to what we're really supposed to be talking about, Bradbury. Ray Bradbury was born in 1920, he died in 2012 at the age of 91. Over the course of his lifetime, he published over 500 short stories, novels, plays, screenplays, television scripts, and poems. He's often credited, and to whatever degree, uh, you know, he didn't really acknowledge this, of defining what today we call science fiction. 
Fahrenheit 451 was written in 1953 and was his first novel. At the time, he was 33 years old. And he claimed it was just a fugitive chase disguised as literature, but I don't really know who he thinks he's kidding with that self-effacing description. <laughs> uh, it's clearly, clearly uh, way more than that. And it kind of had a couple of renditions before then. In 1947, uh, he started off as a short story called Bright Phoenix. And then 1951, there was another short story called The Fireman that was published uh, in a magazine. Uh, but in, in 1953, the full novel kind of came out and really uh, was a tour de force, to use a Faulkner expression. Uh, he wrote it in nine days on a typewriter that he rented for $9.80. And he wrote it in the basement of the Powell Library on the UCLA campus. He claimed, among other things, to show us that he wrote it to show us the danger of what is not going on in our schools, ironically, as he typed inside one of our schools. So, Gary, what about his background? Tell us about how he got there. Well, first of all, I'm going to offer my own disclaimer. I realize there are serious Bradbury aficionados out there, people who've read all of his works. They read his interviews. They've seen his interviews. Um, he's a very well-known character. So please keep in mind, I'm coming at this as the non-literature person. And I understand sometimes one of the rules of literature is that you're never supposed to know the background of the writer or let the writer's personality influence how you interpret the story. But since I'm not uh, an expert in literature, I get to be, um, uh, I get to go off the rails and do this the way I want to do it. So I can't help looking at a writer without looking at his actual or hers real-life background because uh, what I've noticed from literature is that people create out of what they know. And so I was really fascinated with what was Bradbury's background, what was his life uh, before he publishes Fahrenheit 451. And uh, first of all, he's born in middle America, born in Waukegan, Illinois, and that's only important because about the age of 14 in his middle, early teenage years, he moves to Los Angeles. And you have to keep in mind, first of all, the cultural importance of him leaving middle America in Illinois and moving out to Los Angeles. Oh, and another side note, too. He's descended from Mary Bradbury, who was one of the people sentenced to death at the Salem Witch Trials. But she was fortunate enough to escape execution. And I only bring that up because after doing the Scarlet Letter, it's interesting that we keep going back to the Salem witch trials <laughs> in one way or another. Anyway, um, like I was saying, every writer is a product of their environment and they their psychology bubbles to the top in what they write. And so looking at Bradbury's background, I found out, of course, you got to understand pre-World War II Los Angeles uh, you and I, a little while back, we had the opportunity to be a part of a National Endowment for the Humanities Fellowship, and we were invited to come out and study, and one of the things we studied was actual post-World War II culture of Los Angeles, and a lot of interesting things came out of that. First of all, uh, it was a boom town for Hollywood previous to World War II, so you have a constant influx of people during that time. And during actual World War II, it became a major military base of operations and munitions production, aircraft production. Every branch of the military was stationed in some form or another during that time period. 
So we have yet a second layer of transitoriness that is part of Los Angeles during this time period. And then when the war is over, you have the, the huge aerospace industry boom. Everything airplane-related seems to grow up in Los Angeles during this time period. So from 1913, actually up until the 1960s, you've got an area of Southern California, Los Angeles in particular, that is overwhelmed with change. There's constant waves of people, constant people coming from other cultures and moving inside. And the uh, the city limits at one point, uh, it was said that one out of every 40 Americans was living in Los Angeles County. Los Angeles County was more populated than 37 other states in the United States at that time. So Bradbury is growing up in this intense time period of growth for the city of Los Angeles. But more than that, it's this constant moving and uh, changing that was all part of what was going on. Los Angeles is the first real area of urban sprawl and mass suburbs, and it's got the first early massive freeway system. Uh, During Bradbury's time, there just was no equal or comparison to L.A. culture. And by the L.A. culture, I mean the rapid pace of change and the rapid infusion of new things constantly. And so he grows up in an L.A. that lived in a constant, never-ending state of newness and rapid cultural shift. And I feel like that is important to know because right away in Fahrenheit 451, we're immediately going to jump into the theme of isolation. And so when I read this in the first few pages, I thought, wow, he, he gets to this very, very quickly. Where does his sense of isolation come from? And I feel like from his experience, he lived in one of the most volatile turnover cultural regions of the United States in its history ever. And that leads to a lot of detachment and a lot of not knowing your neighbors and not having a sense of neighborhood and belonging and things of that nature. So he leaves small town Waukegan, Illinois, He goes to this giant, churning metropolis called Los Angeles. And I think it's interesting that in a lot of his other books, a lot of them are set in small-town America, as is Fahrenheit 51. And by small-town, I guess I mean anything small than Los Angeles during that time period. But it's going to lead to a lot of isolationism and human disconnection in Fahrenheit 451. What do you think about that, Christine? Well, I mean, I've only been to LA for a couple of weeks myself. So I'm not going to claim to be an expert on LA culture, but I definitely watch TV and movies. And I think the impression of LA from anywhere in the world, if you know anything about American culture, it is kind of at the forefront of things that are happening in other parts of the country. And that, you know, that's reflected in what you're talking about. The 1950s, things were changing all over the United States. Uh, in 1945, the statistics tell us that fewer than 10,000 people had televisions. Wow. But by 1950, that number had jumped to 6 million. And, of course, by 1960, 60 million homes uh, had televisions. And, of course, today, every tele- in America, there's four or five homes in every, te- in every oh, televisions in every home. And there's pretty much a television in every pocket. Uh, in the United States of America. That's let me interrupt for a second. That's a very important cultural note. That kind of expansion of the media is exponentially changing culture. And he is growing up right in the middle of that exponential change. And he sees the change, I think in a way uh that was deep 
I guess the, the term defamiliarization, it's un, he makes it unfamiliar to us. It was unfamiliar to him. Things that today seem very, uh, very common. For example, uh, he saw information go from long scripts to sound bites. Uh, the way that we think of Twitter or, or newscasts or commercials. And he saw that shift in a way that I didn't see because it was already a part of my life when I came down uh, the pipe. And so a lot of the things uh, that he saw in terms of technology really scared him as he watched the world change. It's also interesting to note that this is the 50s. Now, the 50s, I think of, if you think of TV, American TV, we think of the um, happy day shows and uh, Americans um, celebrating uh, bubble gum and, and Coca-Cola, but really it's coming out of the 1940s or the end of World War II, which freaked out the entire world, uh, of course, with the nuclear bomb, and, and no one was comfortable with that. And then, of course, when Russia gets the nuclear bomb and the United States gets the nuclear bomb and then China gets the nuclear bomb... Everyone lives in this fear of technological doom. And so this brings apart, this brings into the United States a culture of fear which immediately becomes exploited by McCarthy, who uses fear as a way to politically control what people are allowed to do, what people are allowed to say, which is something that still happens even today in different ways uh, all over our world. So uh, these are ideas, or these are our cultural, um, I guess, novelties uh, that really impacted him in a way uh, that people need to understand when they look at the book, if you want to look at it from any kind of historical uh, landscape. Well, what I thought was fascinating about the way he handles the book is that even though it is during the era of McCarthyism, he does not steer the book necessarily down the road of McCarthyism, maybe like the Crucible did. He seems to take part of the elements of that McCarthyism, but use it to underscore the whole idea of isolation and disconnection. Well, I think what uh, Ray Bradbury clearly understood, uh, which McCarthy really didn't, is you don't control people by telling them what to think. You can control people by pressuring them socially. And that's really what, uh, that what you see happening in the book and what uh, Bradbury claimed uh, was the nature uh, of true mind control. He talks about this idea of getting rid of literacy altogether. People don't read. They watch. And then they watch things that are fun. And because that's less, that's more comfortable than having these deep conversations. Uh, and what does that do over the course of time? Then this idea that, well, we don't want to offend people. I don't want people to be angry with me. I don't want to be hateful. And so in the name of not being hateful, you begin to suppress slowly but surely uh, things that people are allowed to say things that, are, uh, that might be sensitive, that might be harmful, that might be object objectionable, and you replace them not with stern values like maybe the Puritans would have done, but you replace them with fun, entertainment, violence. And these were the dangers that he really was scared about. And this is a cautionary tale uh, that really speaks to those things. It's interesting that this, the setting is somewhat ambiguous 
I've heard it read, even though I haven't seen a direct quote, that Bradbury said it in 1999. Uh, I've seen scholars say, no, 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 it's in the 24th century. But I think the best quote I've ever heard him say about it, that he wanted the setting to be immediately personable, or I'm sorry, personable, intimate. He wanted to be an atmosphere that was strange but not extravagant. A world as we know it, but in a slight anticipation of time. In other words, just a little bit ahead, right. but not in the, you know, in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> well, I have to go back to the comment of it being uh, placed in 1999. Of course, you know, at this point, we should probably have some uh, Prince music in the background. Yeah. He's going along with that. And I like the idea that uh, he didn't make it so science fiction that it was uh, that uh, it was difficult to track with, and you had to do so much creating in your own mind. He actually was brilliant in bringing it closer to home, and like you said, just slightly ahead. And you talked about the idea of conformity a moment ago. Uh, a very interesting point that gets brought out is the conformity is not being enforced by the government. No, a lot of it is being enforced really by consumerism. And I think this was something that, I don't know, it was, I'm sure, I mean, it's all over the United States, so I'm sure it was over California first, but 60% of Americans are now middle class and you have this upward mobility and you want to be cool and you want to be trendy and you want to have the right ideas and you want to be prosperous. And so that creates a culture of conformity. You don't want to be the small town kid from you know, Nowheresville, uh, Missouri, you want to be hip. And so that kind of creates a natural conformity, uh, especially in urban areas, but even but in, well, I guess, especially in suburban areas where money, me money means something. Well, this idea of consumerism and conformity finds its foothold in the United States in post-World War II America. It's endemic in the 1940s. And we have these outside threats of communism. And so the idea of sameness became very important to Americans. It became protective. And conformity was important because there really was an attitude of it's us on the inside here against those on the outside. And he saw media, social media, as being the tool to kind of enforce it, which was really on the front end of what today we know is truly the power of social media. What would have been the version of social media back then? TV. You know, okay. people knew what to wear because, I don't know, Lucille Ball was wearing it. <laughs> well, now, you know, you have the Kardashians. And, well, my daughter watched, watches these vlogs where they literally go into celebrities' houses and they open their closet and they say, oh, my gosh, you got to see these shoes. I just bought them. And, of course, you can buy them at Amazon. Da, 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 da. And then you can literally click and 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 directly influence in a direct, immediate way, in a way, of course, clearly you wouldn't be able to do in 1950. Well, it's funny how uh, the whole idea of conformity and fighting conformity runs through American literature. That just seems to show up all the time. It's part of our national character to want to be part of a group and want to be above and separate from the group at the same time, to uh, condemn conformity, but at the same time, complement all the things that accomplishes it. And I, I see this with many authors. Well, America, at the end of the day, especially if you're going to compare us to Japan or India or Europe, we're a baby as a country. And the ideas that we have, 
I think are, are really kind of juvenile from a cultural standpoint. We're still sitting around trying to find human fulfillment. And the discussion that Bradbury has is, it's fun, you know, what, what value can you be fulfilled by having fun? Well, that's an adolescent idea, but it's also a very American idea. We're driven. Look at, I mean, we, imp, we export entertainment all over the world. We're fascinated by it. So I think that is also a part of our culture as we kind of, I don't want to say grow up as a country, but maybe that is kind of what it is. We, we're definitely expressing it in a way that I don't see other countries wrestling with. Well, in that case, Bradbury is a prophet because for those who are familiar with the book, you're going to understand that one of the features of homes in this book is, are going to be the panels. And keep in mind that Bradbury's writing about the panels at a time when television, A, was not in color, and B, was a big square box. And he has this vision of flat panels in rooms that are so huge as to dwarf all your senses. And I think we've arrived. Oh, my gosh. When I read this book, and I, of course, I read this book a lot because I, I, I've taught this book for many years, but I read this book every year and I find something in it technologically that I didn't see the year before. So obviously the seashells that we're going to see right off the bat, they, they're like headphones. But then you have the panel walls, which you brought out, which are kind of like flat screen TVs. But then we have an Alexa in the book because they have interactive TVs in there. And there's Twitter because you get sound bites in the radio. And there's violence on television and there's this idea of surveillance of the government and, and video cameras everywhere watching what you're doing. And this idea of relying te on technology for your social experience like we would see in Snapchat or Instagram even or some of these other social forms. So other people can probably find more. I think the more you read, the more technology you can see being fleshed out that he kind of hinted at. And I don't even know if he knew what he was talking about. I don't know how he could possibly know what he's talking about. These things didn't exist. He couldn't. And uh, I laugh every time I see the word ear thimbles. And <laughs> we'll be discussing the ear thimbles going forward. I want to make a psychological historical note about Bradbury writing this book during this time period also. He is at uh, a point of psychology history where the field of psychology which had been heavily dominated up to that point by behaviorism, was beginning to give way to a new field of psychology called humanism. And it's interesting that at the time, American culture is going deeper and deeper into, as Bradbury fears, less connected, less human. We see the emergence of the whole humanistic field of psychology paralleling the same time. Well, I think there is a lot of uh, psychology, especially when you come to the concept of interpersonal relationships. I mean, the book isn't really about interpersonal relationships in, a, in the same way that maybe the Scarlet Letter was, but it clearly is a place, what's well, important to human existence, and he finds it uh, kind of as a way to set up uh, foils or, or different characters and their relationships in the story. And, Maybe with that, is that a good transition for starting in on page one, sentence one? It might as well be. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Well, like I've said before, like I said uh, during the last book, every good literature teacher will tell you that you really want to pay attention to the first few sentences of any great book because the author is going to try to 
uh, give it away. And I'm not going to say he's going to give away his plot. They don't necessarily do that. But he will give away uh, his themes. What is it that he wants to say about life in the middle? And, the, uh, and he'll start doing that at the very beginning of the book. This book is no different. Sentence one is a, is a short sentence. It was a pleasure to burn. That says a lot. <laughs> the book is about pleasure. The p- book is about burning. And, of course, fire is really interesting. It's a unique archetype. It can be renewal. It can be cleansing. It can be destructive. It can be all kinds of things. And we don't know what he means uh, at this point, but there's a connection between pleasure and burning. And then he uses the word again. He says it was a special pleasure to see things eaten, to see things blackened and changed. With the brass nozzle in his fist, with his great python spitting its venomous kerosene into the world, the blood pounded in his head, and his hands were the hands of some amazing conductor playing all the symphonies of blazing and burning to history down the tatters and charcoal ruins of history. Well, clearly the tone at the very beginning is excited. He's excited. He's happy. Uh, But what is he happy about? Because you see kind of some mixed messages here. Uh, There's blood, there's venom, there's kerosene, but it's juxtaposed with something beautiful, like a conductor playing a symphony. Then you have back-to-back with blazing and burning. Then, of course, the ruins of history. If you break it down uh, the way I'm going to do it, I see a couple of things. First of all, this reference to a python. That's a snake, and snakes are really interesting. In the Christian culture, you know, they can kind of be associated with negative things because in the Garden of Eden, Satan was a snake. But if you look past Christianity and you look at other cultures, snakes don't always mean something negative. They're, the shed, they, they, they're associated with renewal. Uh, you, they shed their skin. They're starting over. And I think it's in this sense that we see the great python spitting its venomous kerosene into the world because they're trying to beautify the world by erasing our history, the negative things, blazing and burning and tearing it down. And they're excited to do that. And of course, what he's doing uh, is he's burning down a house. It's interesting to point out that he wears on his helmet the number 451. Which is the temperature at which paper burns, which is our whole point. So they say, I've never actually... uh, Conducted the experiment. No, 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 no. (laughs) I'm going to take their word for it. So, uh, so many things going on there. Yes, the whole idea that destruction is positive, that he's convinced in the opening uh, words of the book that he's providing a valuable skill to society or service to society and doing good by getting rid of books. Now, we're going to have to get into the second chapter before we start talking about why the books are a threat why abstract thinking is a threat, what it represents, how it's going to be the game changer in this whole thing. When history is a threat, and we're going to see that, there's things that are negative in history, and we need to take that, take those out. Uh, the next couple of sentences, he says this, he wanted above all, like the old joke, to shove a marshmallow on a stick in the furnace while the flapping of pigeon wing books died on the porch This is flippant language. Mm -hmm. He's comparing the burning of books to marshmallows. You couldn't take them less seriously. And of course, uh, 
again, we see that there's value and there's pleasure of this actually all coming to fruition in his mind. And after he burns the books and performs his public service and satisfies his conscience that he's done a good thing by getting rid of history, then he uh, he's carefree, he's unreflective, he showers, he cleans up, he skips down the street. Uh, he, he calls himself a menstrual man. Okay, so he just feels uh, great. Well, not great, because we're going to find out somebody's going to ask him the question that's going to upset the apple cart here in just a moment. But he certainly doesn't feel um, overt pain or shame or guilt or anguish about burning books and burning homes and things of that nature. No, he's whistling. He's walking to the corner. He's uh, slowing down, clearly unreflective, uh, until he feels a presence that kind of makes him nervous. Somebody's there that he's not uh, anticipating. And this kind of, you know, sparks his interest, but there's not a... There's no element of fear or darkness at all in this part of the book. It says that he turns and he sees uh, something white. And this ultimately is going to be a girl. Uh, Her face is slender with milk white in it, a kind of gentle hunger that touched over everything with tireless curiosity. Her dress was white. Uh, And says the infinite sound now, the white stir of her face. So white, 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 white. This is not a racial statement at all. We're not talking about ethnicity here. White, as it relates to this little girl, is going to be reflective of her innocence. It's also used in an archetypal way, as colors often are. She's innocent. She's curious. She's everything, of course, that he is not. Which gets played out in one scene where here he is skipping down the road, minding his own business, undisturbed in the grand scheme of his life and he meets Clarice and as they're talking he says he felt she was walking in a circle about him turning him end for end shaking him quietly and emptying his pockets without once moving herself so here is a guy who by his own habit is unreflective about his own existence he meets Clarice and immediately he feels seen through he feels exposed and he feels awkward by it so Clarice is packing a lot of power right here in her interaction with him. And my tag, I want to point out, is going to be kind of the everyman. We're not meant to judge him. We're meant to be him. He's successful. He's probably good looking. He has a beautiful wife and a good career. He's everything that he's supposed to be in this, if you want to think of it in Bradbury terms, in this suburban L.A. community where success is measured in all the right ways. He also has on his arm, and I just bring this up because these are going to be kind of reoccurring symbols throughout the book. Um, he has a salamander on his arm, and he has a phoenix disc on his chest. And these, of course, are, um, are symbols, deliberate symbols that the firehouse has kind of created to kind of represent this organization that, uh, of firemen. And they're characterized by the phoenix and the salamander. The salamander, of course represents forces of anger. It's a mythological lizard uh, born from fire. Um, The fire trucks are called salamanders because they spit kerosene. We're going to see this a little bit later and not water. And of course, everybody knows that the phoenix is a bird that burns and rises out of the ashes. So we'll see that kind of come back again. But she sees it and this little girl is going to engage this fireman. And she says, oh, you must be 
the fireman because she sees his professional symbols. And she's not afraid of him. And they have a conversation about her not being afraid of him. Apparently, she expected him to be more intimidating, and he just wasn't. So they engage in a conversation, and this is where Clarice becomes a fascinating character to me. So if he's every man, and we've already established he feels like she's looking into his innermost being and and taking the depth of him, how does that happen? And I thought, look at how he describes Clarice. As Clarice walks around and talks to Montag, she's looking at things. She's smelling things. She watches the sunrise. She says she loves to watch people. She talks about her thoughts. Uh, she notices the dew on the grass in the morning. She sits around and visits with her family. Uh, the, the, the lights in her home are blazing. They sit around talking. And she has this one comment that I think's awesome. She says, we, we're sitting around talking. It's like being a pedestrian, only rarer. And so he's immediately confronted with this person who's very engaged in their own being. They're very engaged in their own awareness, and they're very engaged in the world and experience. And she's very present in the moment, and he is never present. And he, all of a sudden, her presence comes lack. Excuse me. It comes uh, face to face with his lack of presence. What's funny about this, too, is when I read this with my kids, they always jump to the conclusion, oh, they're going to have an affair, they're going to have an affair, there's a guy, there's a girl, because every single story today, that's the plot, but it is clearly not the plot, it has nothing to do with the plot of this book. She's 17 and crazy. No, he's not a pedophile. No, we're not going there. Yes, it's the middle of the night, but in no way are you supposed to gauge the text in that way, which is almost impossible for a modern reader to do because that's what every story is about. So are your students just terribly disappointed? Oh, it is very disappointing for sure. Uh, but of course, every story in school is going to disappoint you in some way or another. <laughs> but anyway, uh, they engage, and I want to point out again, her description is really interesting. Her face, turned to him now, was fragile milk crystal and a soft and constant light in it. It says that uh, it lit like a candle. It was illumination. So you see this thing, she glows, almost like she's not even a real person. She has this angelic quality that is un unlike anybody else in that world. And he says... Since I was 20, 10 years ago. So that dates, that gives him an age. He's 30 and she's 17. He's, and she asks, we find this out because she says, do you mind if I ask how long you've worked at being a fireman? And of course, they have this kind of casual conversation of what he does versus what she does and that he's not scared, she's not scared of him. And he's like, well, why not? Yeah. And, of course, he talks about what he does. He burns stuff. He burns Malay, which is an author, a poet. Whitman, who's an American poet, Faulkner, who's an American novelist. Uh, it's our official slogan. Uh, is it true? And then he says this. Is it true, she says, that long ago firemen put out fires instead of starting them? And his answer is no. Houses have always been fireproof. Take my word for it. And then we, f we first get the first inkling that history has been changed. People rewrite it when they don't want it to be a certain way. And as we have established in other conversations, it's called gaslighting. And so an entire culture has been gaslighted at this point. 
Now, now, tell us what that means again. Gaslighting is the idea that you perceive reality and other people work very hard to tell you that your perception is wrong and flawed and that you misunderstand them and you misinterpret them and you possibly cannot be right and you're assigning bad motives to me, which cannot be assigned. Anyway, it leaves people disoriented and confused as to what reality actually is. Well, of course, she doesn't go with it. She goes, hmm, I heard once that a long time ago houses used to burn by accident and they needed firemen to stop the flames. And of which, of course, he laughs. And I don't think he's trying to lie to her. I think he really believes what he's been he told. Does. He's twice her age almost. And so he's been an adult for a long time. And in his experience, he can't remember a day when they put the fires out. So he has no idea where she would even get such a crazy harebrained idea. I do want to point out, uh, you brought up the pedestrian. Uh, there's a short story that Bradbury wrote called The Pedestrian, and it's about her uncle in this book. So he kind of connects okay. all of his stuff, uh, who got arrested in the little short story uh, for walking because that was too out of control or too unusual uh, well, there it is. He drove 40 miles an hour, and they jailed him for two days. So. Yes. There's a more contrast we're going to bring out in the next episode. But as we kind of wind down towards the end of ep this one episode, we have to uh, talk about Clarice when she asks the question. And it's the question that's going to be, to me, as the, as the amateur in this group, it's the question where we divide and we change gears, and now we start building this contrast in the story very, very quickly. So, do I ask the question, or do you ask the question? Go for it. So, Clarice looks at Montag, and she says, are you happy? And he says, am I what? He, he's stunned by the question. And it's interesting that he's living in a culture where people don't ask that. No, because of course we are. He gets happy of all the nonsense. So, there you have it. He's asked the question, or she's asked the question, are you happy? His immediate reflexive reply is, of course I'm happy. But then he's going to leave the conversation with Clarice. He's going to leave this girl who has displayed all this integration with her world. And I want to say a thing about integration from the psychological point, or the word integrity, Integrity can get misstrewn as the idea that people are honest and moral. Actually, integrity is the idea that the parts of your personality and who you are are integrated and in agreement, and they're consistent across the spectrum. So here's this girl who, at the age of 17, is integrated, and here he is, this professional fireman at the age of 30, completely disintegrated. And with that thought... Shall we wind down? Yes, with that thought, let's wind down. If you enjoyed what you were listening to today with Christy and I on How to Love Lit Podcast, please hit the subscribe button and join us next time when we take up the conversation between Mildred and Montag, and we're going to see a different side of his life. Earth and the Salamander, uh, next episode. So come back and listen to us and we'll talk in detail.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.